And I think that's the dialogue we need to have here because I always get this implicit sense that multicultural, diverse, more languages, more is more. Uh, it can be, but it, it isn't necessarily. And, and just just to say, multicultural people with multiple languages—they're not necessarily always accepting of other cultures. That's that's a myth. It's a complete myth. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Big Blend, the podcast about merging cultures, identity, and transmission. This episode's guest is Max Volke. His family is English, German, Chilean, and French. For those of you who are listening for the first time, you can discover the story behind the podcast in the first episode, The Prologue. Before we start, let me tell you a little bit about Max. His mom is Chilean, his dad is German. His parents met in London and Max was born there. When he was two years old, the family moved to Munich, but Max's parents realized that they preferred the vibrant multiculturality of London, so they came back when Max was seven and stayed there. So he pretty much grew up and spent a very long time in the UK. Today, he lives in Munich. His partner is French, and they have a one-year-old daughter together. I wanted to interview him because, well, first, Max has strong opinions and an analytical view on the subject, and he has three very strong cultures. The English one, the country he grew up in, the German one, the country he lives in, and the Chilean one, with which his family has a pretty intense history. I'll let you discover that in the episode. Hi, Max. Hi, Maria. So, Max, where are you from? Huh, that's a complicated question. Um, and the answer I give to that changes who I'm talking to and in what context. Usually, as you can probably hear, my accent's British, so that's the immediate response. Ah, you must be English. And then comes this look of confusion where people go, but you don't look English, um, especially in the summer months. So anyone who knows you is my, you know, on my mum's side, I go a bit darker. Um, and I actually had this experience once from a colleague who uh, who kind of blurted this out and then was very apologetic afterwards for how politically incorrect <laughs> she'd been. Um, but no, it, I, I would say it's, it's generally complicated. Um, and the default answer is I say I'm a mix. And if I can be bothered, I then explain what the mix is. Okay. Um, you were born in London, moved to Munich, but then you moved back to London when you were seven. Can you tell me a little bit how that went, if you remember? My memory of it was that it was very difficult for a few reasons. The, the first one was I didn't know any of the British customs really growing up in Germany. So I remember being invited around to go for tea, which I kind of suddenly had this Downton Abbey picture of us, you know, drinking out of China bone cups and stuff. And I thought, this is crazy. You know, we're like seven. We should just be playing football outside or in a sandpit. So there's that thing. Then I think the other thing is in Germany, you go to school a bit later or in continental Europe generally. So, you, you know, you'll have a lot of play, but you won't formally learn how to read and do maths and stuff till maybe five, six, seven. The English school system starts much earlier. So actually moved back, unable to read, whereas a lot of my classmates could. At the NS, I got put into a class for children with a range of learning disabilities, which range from being deaf to, to other types of things. And I just had this moment of what's happened to me. Like when I was in Germany, I was this kid and now I'm in with these other kids. And I'm kind of being treated as if, you know, I don't get things. So it took me a year to, year to catch up. And then, then, then I realized, ah, oh, it's just that they learned to read earlier here. I learned how to read and it, it was kind of fine. So, but it was a bit rocky. It was a little bit rocky. I, I won't lie. And why do you think your parents came back to the UK? I think for them, they had a natural affinity to, to the UK, but particularly to London as a very open place. We'll get onto this in a little bit, but my mother was actually a political refugee from Chile. So it was displaced, ended up in Colchester, which is, which is in Essex. And I think maybe they just felt, you know, we lived in Munich. It was a bit more traditional. It was a bit homely. And they wanted just to go back to some space where they felt they could be who they wanted to be and be this international family, I think. Mm. Um, I haven't actually ever really asked my parents this explicitly. But the fact they still both live in the UK, they have a lot of friends in the UK, suggests to me they made it their second home. You know, that middle place that isn't home, but becomes their new home. 
What were the languages spoken at home? Okay, so uh, <laughs> I remember from a very young age when I was born in England, it was definitely English. And my mum was very keen on me to learn how to speak English like an English person. So she still has a little bit of a Latin accent. She won't admit to it. Uh, same with my dad. He's convinced he speaks, you know, BBC English. He still sounds like a German dude. <laughs> the German accent is very hard to shake, even after 30 years in the UK. So it was definitely English. And the Radio 4 Today program was on in the kitchen in the morning. And I distinctly remember my mum saying, you should speak like the newsreader or you should speak like that. That's proper English. That's how you speak well. So very much English was in the foreground. Uh, my mum's Chilean, so Spanish was always there. Spanish songs, Spanish nursery rhymes, uh, Latin music was in the house. So that was always around. But I think then when we moved to Germany, there was a need for me to speak German. So then it was predominantly German with my dad and Spanish kind of become the third language. And that was then a language I didn't really, if I'm honest, speak at all till I was 16, 17. And I, to this date, my, my Spanish is still kind of slightly Tarzan Spanish, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of missing all kinds of connectives and verbs. But yeah, so those are the three languages that were, that, that were orbiting. Did you wish you spoke uh, better Spanish? I certainly do when I'm there, yeah. <laughs> when I'm in Chile with my family. I mean, you know what it's like when you speak a foreign language. Even when you speak well, you feel limited when you're missing vocab or when you can't make that joke in the moment that you want to make because you just can't do it quick enough. I mean, a lot of my jokes fall flat anyway, but, but it's even worse when you try and make a joke in a foreign language. You can blame it on the language. That's what I say to myself. Yeah, all those tumbleweed moments over my life have just been due to you know, poor Spanish skills. <laughs> If you could go back and give an advice to your parents on how they accompanied you in navigating the different cultures, what would you have liked to happen back then? I really don't know, actually. I think on one hand, my, my parents did a great job just to encourage me and my sister just to be who we are, both, both as personalities, both as cultural identities. I wish sometimes, though, that they helped me navigate British culture a bit more. So the British are very reserved. They can be very indirect. They can be incredibly polite. And there's often a sense of one thing being said, but another thing being meant. And I had none of these subtleties. I was a pretty brash little boy. I'd kind of come over from Germany. I said things as they were. If I was good at football, I would tell people I was good at football. And that directness didn't, didn't sit well, actually, to be honest, uh, early on. And I wish my parents had kind of said, I'm actually, you know, Britain, you know, people are a bit more like this. But they didn't. And I don't know, maybe I'm grateful for that. I mean, th there's this story in my family where, if there are any football fans listening, Euro 96, really big football tournament. England played Germany in the semi-finals, and the English lost on penalties. And it was a huge moment of national hurt because, again, the English football team had failed, but they'd lost to the Germans, the old enemy. And this is typical of my father. Instead of kind of taking it um, and being a good winner, he was, you know, kind of proud, jumping around, winding up all his English friends. But even better than that, he then sent me to my football camp the next day. Um, so this some football camp I was on in a full German football kit. Uh, I'm not joking when I think I was racially abused and shouted at by a number of dads and, and called bad names because it was just so raw. And, and it was just such a, I think actually, if I'm honest, it was my dad's reaction to British banter culture. And he was like, look, we Germans can be funny as well. I'm going to send my son to football camp in the full German kit. See how you like that. He found it very funny. Um, I now find it incredibly funny. I just remember leaving that day thinking, I don't know, I've been called all names under the sun and I don't know what I did wrong. <laughs> other than where the little football kit. It was character building there, Marianne. It was character building. <laughs> you talked about your sister. Does she have the same cultural attachment to the different cultures as you? 
It's funny you ask that. I was talking, I was having dinner with my sister the other night and we, we talked about this um, and I mentioned I was coming on to chat to you about this and I did ask her, I said, um, so Selena, her name's Selena, what culture do you feel the closer affinity to? And so she speaks much better Spanish than me. She does a lot of salsa, a lot of dance. Um, she spent a lot more time over there than I have. So I, my assumption was, hey, Selena, you're, you're more Latin. You've absorbed that element of our culture more. But weirdly, actually, I think the way she thinks, the way she's structured, she's more stereotypically German. And, and we ended up coming to the same conclusion that actually, no, we're just a mix of each and we don't know exactly what the proportions are. And in fact, we dial it up or dial it down, depending where we are. Mm. So over in Chile, we try and be a little bit more this, maybe in certain circumstance, I guess if you're dancing salsa, your Chilean side's going to come out a bit more. So it's fluid, actually. Maybe that's the biggest strength. You can kind of, you can pick and choose and you can dial things up and down when you want. It's kind of like, they're like baking or something. You can just put a bit more in or leave a bit more out. Nice. What did your dad do to, to get you closer to the German culture when you were growing up? The thing that brought me closest to German culture is my dad and his school friends uh, have this annual camping trip. And it's this ritual almost. So him and his friends have been doing it since they were teenagers, or actually, I think, eight or nine years old. So we would always go to Germany once a year this weekend, and we'd all go camping in the forest. There'd be a big campfire, and there'd be singing, and there'd be music, and there'd be everything from the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Moody Blues, but, but then also lots of German songs. And especially North German songs. So Moorsoldaten, for example, is a, is a, is a song about German soldiers from Emsland, from the Emsland region, which is where my dad's from, going to war and losing their lives. So that was what bound me. It was singing those German songs around the campfire with my dad, everyone drinking a lot of beer, seeing my auntie, seeing my cousins once a year without fail. That was the strongest, strongest bond possible. And it still is. So we're going this year. Minnie's coming for the first time. Minnie is Max's daughter. She's going to be initiated into this little tribe in the forest. She's going to be the third generation now. Me, my sister and I went when we were just born. She's going to be the next generation. That's what bonds us. And uh, what about Chilean rituals? So the Chilean ritual used to be going for Christmas and seeing the whole family and having a big barbecue. What I love about my Chilean family, but what, what is noticeably different is the ability to sit and talk and the hours for which they can sit and talk <laughs> <laughs> around the table, catching up, sharing stories. Oh, how's this person? How's that person? So that was the ritual. I mean, the, the only other ones would be when my mum was cooking. You know, she would make empanadas or lentejas con ají or like these Chilean dishes, um, pastel de choclo. And it would, it would transport us momentarily over to Chile, transport us out of the English winter for, you know, 30 minutes while we were sat there having, having our family dinner. 30 minutes of sun. Do you cook? I do, yeah. And do you cook Chilean meals? <laughs> I do. And actually, this was, uh, this is, I think, one of the ways I convinced my niece to, to, to stay with me and, and find me a vaguely kind of compatible partner. Um, and, and we talked earlier about, um, you know, dialing up and dialing down your cultural identity. When we first met, I remember inviting her and one of her friends' friends who was in London around for dinner. Um, and that, that evening I decided I was just going to be, you know, very Latin. You're going to play the Latin cards. I'm going to play the Latin card. I was wearing a pair of Cuban heels and flares and a shirt with one too many buttons undone and, you know, all of it. And I was like, right, I'm going to cook, I'm going to cook Chilean food. And why did I decide? Because, because Chilean food is quite exotic in the sense that it's not well known as a global cuisine. So I was like, all right, this is a bit exotic. And I could, I could see these two French girls were kind of like, all right, what is Chilean food? This is interesting. I only know two Chilean recipes, which is enough. <laughs> They didn't need to know that.
which passports do you have? So I've got a German and a British passport. Um, I never took a Chilean one because there was a requirement for mandatory military service. Um, and I didn't want to spend two years of my life hanging around in the Atacama Desert shooting at llamas or something. And I could I could get an Italian passport through my uh, maternal grandmother. And interestingly, the Italians, because they have such a low birth rate, are very keen to get people who are eligible to take up their citizenship. Whenever my mum goes to renew her Italian passport, there's always the, hey, where are your bambinis? You know, we need we need to get them in. They need to, they, they have to be Italian as well. <laughs> and my mum then always passes this on and I always kind of politely decline because I don't really feel Italian. So I, I'd feel a bit of a traitor carrying an Italian passport around. And if there wasn't the military service in Chile, would you have liked to have it? For symbolic value, yes. Um, I think just being very practical, there probably wouldn't be any advantage. I feel incredibly lucky to have, you know, a, a British and a German passport. And with those passports, you know, you can travel most of the world fairly unrestricted. With a Chilean one, you need a lot more visas. It would just be symbolic just to kind of be like my different identities in an official government document and you could lay them next to each other. But I don't feel that's necessary. What's your relationship to Chile? So I think for most of my life, it's always been this um, slightly exotic place, this kind of Gabriel Garcia, Marquez, magic, realistic place, the Pacific Ocean, the loving embrace of my family, who, you know, it's a huge family. I have 10 cousins, my grandparents, my aunties live there. So it was always this very exotic, welcoming, loving, warm place. Um, but it was one we visited every four years. And, and when we went, it was on holiday. So it was, I always had that kind of relationship to it. And I think it was also mediated through my mum, who had a certain longing and, and, and missed her home being so far away in, in the United Kingdom. When you would go there, would you feel that you are kind of Chilean or it would really be, you'd really feel like a tourist? I felt rooted, but I, we were always the, the English cousins coming over to visit. My other cousins, you've got to understand with Latin culture, it's a lot like a lot of Mediterranean cultures. Your cousins almost like your brothers and sisters. It's indistinguishable. So my cousins would play together. They would see each other every day. They went to the same school. They would have lunch together, lunch together with my grandparents. You know, so you'd have four generations or three generations at a lunch table. So those bonds and those relationships are so strong that you, of course you feel like a bit like an outsider. Although my family were amazing just to let us in, but we, yeah, we were still the cousins who'd come a really long way from England. We'd turn up really, really pale and sickly uh, coming out of a European winter while they were kind of bronzed and healthy, you know, on a diet of fish, avocado and fresh tomatoes. So yeah, no, there was definitely, you were definitely aware that you belonged, but you were still separate too. You talked about the Chilean revolution you, and at the very beginning of the interview, you talked about your mom being a refugee. What's your relationship to Chilean politics? So my family are very, very political. Um, and I think as anyone who's been opposed to a dictatorial regime like the Pinochet regime. A little history bracket here. Between 1973 and 1990, Chile was under an authoritarian military dictatorship. It was headed by General Pinochet. This regime violated human rights in many different ways. Dissidents were tortured, killed, or even disappeared out of the blue. So yes, my mother was a political refugee from Chile. But my grandmother, who I'm incredibly proud of, was a real firebrand. She was a social worker, a sociologist and a lecturer um, in Valparaiso. And she was organizing against the Pinochet regime, which put my mum and her brothers and sisters in danger, no doubt. And then there's a kind of a, a tricky discussion to be had there. But they stood up for what they believed in, um, which was not to be oppressed, not to be silenced. None of the disgusting things that the Pinochet regime did, which was to disappear, to torture, to suppress. So yeah, my family has an eye by default of that, have a very strong political relationship to Chile, and I follow Chilean politics closely. But I think that's also then um, influenced my broader outlook on the world. So you've got to, everyone should remember that September the 11th, 1973, was the original 9-11. This is the date of the beginning of the establishment of Pinochet's regime. 
On this day, there was a coup d'état, backed by the CIA, that removed the democratically elected socialist government of Salvador Allende. Now, how does that make me look at the world? Well, I'm highly, highly critical of American intervention across the planet. And I find this kind of Western reaching sometimes to other countries about how they should conduct their affairs, therefore less like a European, but more like a Latin American, um, who sees actually that there's a huge amount of hypocrisy in Western, but specifically American foreign policy, which I think makes me a bit of an anomaly in that sense, because in a political discussion, I'm very much with siders of Latin American countries, maybe lots of other countries across the world who've suffered at the hands of what I basically see as like a form of neo-imperialism. This whole political interest that you got for Chile, did you know the whole story from a very early age or did you discover it later in life? There was a lot of conversations and a lot of questions. So I always knew that my auntie, my mum's sister, who she was very close to, was murdered by the regime. And I knew that was a huge source of pain for my family. I knew that. But, you know, when you're a child, you, you see that as incredibly sad. And I would see my mum very upset on the anniversary of her death or when it was her birthday. And I'd understand that in a very childish way. And then as I got older, I would, I asked more and more questions and would inquire more and more. And to this day, I mean, even as recently as a couple of months ago, I was sat at dinner late in the evening chatting to my, my auntie, Blanca, and she was telling stories I'd never heard before as well about life under the regime, how they, for example, had to hide my uncle who was being searched by the secret police and all these stories I hadn't heard. So it's this constantly evolving narrative, I think, of that time. Yeah. And things have been revealed over time. Um, but I, I remember that the most emotional moment was, I think it was about a decade ago, I was, um, between university and starting work, I was traveling in South America and I spent two weeks with my grandmother and she told me all these stories which really filled the blanks in, in my memory and I'm so grateful she did that. Yeah, you got pieces of your story along the way and you're, you're kind of piecing it all together. So you told me a big part of your mom's family stood up against oppression. Do you feel that this um, activism was passed down to you? So if I'm being very self-critical, I think I haven't followed that through in my life, if I'm honest, in the same way. Firstly, because I've not based anything equivalent to that. I mean, as terrible as Boris Johnson's government is right now, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a dictatorial regime. I know I remember having this very distinct moment while I was at university. Um, and for anyone who studied in the United Kingdom around 2010, 2011 will remember this is the coalition government promised not to in introduce tuition fees which would obviously exclude a lot of people from, from lower means from, from university education. In 2010, there was a vote in the government to increase university tuitions in the UK. So students went to the streets and protested against this decision. And there were big protests and I felt very strongly about it. I felt it was regressive. I felt um, they'd gone back on their word. And I remember it was just as I was coming up to my finals exams and I had kind of had this choice to make. Was I going to go down to London and march that day? Was I going to join the sit-ins um, at Cambridge University? Or was I just going to kind of get my exams together, get my things together so I could graduate and kind of go off and have a life? And I, I made the choice to get my head down and study, um, probably because I hadn't studied enough actually over three years, <laughs> more than anything, more out of desperation. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm not as radical as I thought I was. And that was a bit of a hard thing to take for me. I was just being very practical about, you know, making sure I got my degree done and that would set me up. That's that's why I always think when people ask me that, I'm just like, mm, yeah, probably, probably not. And I'm, I'm sometimes a bit disappointed, actually. Let's fast forward to today. 
Your partner is French and you have a daughter, Mini, and you live in Munich. So how did you set the strategy when it comes to the languages spoken at home? Well, very badly to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of mixed. I was talking to her in German sometimes then, then English, and then my partner was talking to her in French. And about four or five weeks in, we were like, right, we, we actually need an approach here. We should do the one parent, one language approach. Otherwise, she's going to end up completely confused, which was really hard for me to then choose between German and English because I was like, oh, we're in Germany and especially in public. I find it weird speaking to my child in English when I'm like in a German setting. But anyway, I did it. Um, so now what we're doing is it's uh, Maidi speaks to Minnie in French and um, I speak to her in English and she, we just found out last week, she's going to go to a bilingual um, kindergarten. So she's going to have uh, French and German at the kindergarten. And then we're just going to, we just have to see what happens with the three. And Would you want to teach her Spanish or for her to know Spanish? I would love for her to know Spanish, but I feel very comfortable with her picking that up later in life. Maybe as part of, you know, when she goes traveling and wants to explore the world a little bit to, to then do it. It's always going to be there. She's always going to have it through her grandmother, through my mum, and she's always going to have it when we visit Chile to see our family. So it'll always be there. And I think it'll be accessible to her and she can, she can grab it when she needs it. Which passports does she have? So she has quite a collection, actually. She's a lucky little girl. And if ever she gets into financial difficulty, I will say to her, you know, you've got one passport here that you can, you can resell for quite a lot <laughs> of money <laughs> on the dark web. So she holds a, well, let me talk about the order of doing it and the experience, which was super interesting, actually, as an insight into how different countries work. So the easiest to get was the French. So France, I think, have done an amazing job of digitizing passport application, everything. So she, she got her little French passport. That one came in first. And then we applied for the British one. What was really disturbing, I found, in trying to get the British one was the amount of questions that were asked about um, my mother's indefinite right to remain. When I was born in London, my mum wasn't a British citizen. She is now, she's naturalized. And they kept asking, what well, was your mum allowed to be in the United Kingdom when you were born? With the implication, if they found any discrepancies in her documentation, that I wouldn't A, be able to get a passport for my daughter. But I also then thought, what happens to my British citizenship? Do you suddenly boot me out? Do you, do you say to me, oh, you know, sorry, you, you know, your mum had some difficulties or some technicalities with her visa 33 years ago, sorry. And it really really made me think about how countries can really open and close and how citizenship, even when it's bestowed on you, can sometimes be unstable. So that was that was the experience with getting the British one. So thank God it all worked. But it was, yeah, it was really, really unpleasant. And then, yeah, and then she got the, the third one, which is her journal. So she's going to have an interesting mix of different cultures. What do you wish that she'll answer to the question, where are you from when she grows up? I hope Minnie says it's complicated as well and has to go on and explain Because actually her, her cultural identity is even more complicated than mine. She's kind of a third culture kid already, just genetically, biologically, with Chilean, German and French. She's living in Germany, but if, we, if, we're not, if we don't live in Germany in the future, nor France, nor the United Kingdom, let's say another country, she'll have that to, to play with as well. So yeah, little, little mini, I think, is going to have to be quite good at navigating all those different cultures and contexts. But I hope she says it's complicated, because I think it is. <laughs> it's good. It gives a good conversation starter. Today, where do you feel the most at home? I love that you asked me this question today, actually, of all times, because I was in London last week visiting family and seeing everyone. And I was walking through the streets of London that I know at the back of my hand, um, cycling through London, you know, without having to consult a map. And I was like, I know the city so well, but I no longer live here and I haven't lived here for three years and it didn't feel like home. And so there's something about the grey skies and the potholed roads and all, the, all, the, all those things which give London some of its charm that I felt, oh, this isn't what I'm used to anymore. 
and now we live in Munich. But Munich doesn't either feel fully like home yet. I mean, we've, we've made some friends, but we're not really rooted here. So if I'm really honest, I came back from that feeling a little bit in a um, liminal space, somewhere between home and belonging and floating in and amongst different places. Now, just to add some complications to that as well. I mean, we live in Munich and I work in Berlin and Berlin's become an adopted city for me as well. I spend a lot of my weeks there in the evening. So Berlin also kind of features in that. So it's kind of London, Munich, Berlin. So I don't know. I'm, 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 I really struggle to answer that question right now. And does it bother you that you can't answer that question? Do you know what? It doesn't. I, I, no I noticed it and I, it made me feel weird because if you'd asked me that question a few years ago, I would have very clearly said, you know, home's London. That's where my family are. That's where my closest friends are. That's where the most important people in my life are. And they, they still are. I mean, they, most of them still live there. Those are still my strongest and longest relationships. But I think when you depart from a place and you return to it, you do see it with different eyes. Or maybe you observe things you hadn't before about a place. Or you, you always make comparisons to the place you actually live. So what I often do when I go back to the UK now is my reference point is Germany and is Munich specifically. And I just notice a few things. I'm like, oh, London's really dirty or the train's always late. I know these are superficial things, but I, I hadn't noticed them before because I didn't have the contrast. Um, what's the hardest part of having this many cultures in the home? What's the hardest part? I mean, the implication with that question is that there's some kind of challenge in it, right? Um, that you're juggling. But actually, I don't really think there's a, a hard part to it. I think it's such a gift to have that ability to have those different things. I mean, the, the, the fact that, for example, when, when my niece cooks, it's amazing French food that I wouldn't otherwise eat. And I learned something about the culture through that. Or when I do something, I, I might do it in a way that she thinks, all oh, right, I, I would never have thought of, it, of doing it that way. So I don't see any difficulty in it. I would, I would almost see that question as what's the best part of it. And I think the best part is the, the ability to jump between all those different cultures. Based on your experience as a kid and now as a parent, what would be the advice you'd give parents who are raising multicultural kids or third culture kids? Okay, so I think, I think this is my view on it. And let me answer that question by coming into this way. So I have a few friends, for example, who have um, mixed cultures. And I notice a very big difference between those who've had elements of that culture passed on and language passed on and those who haven't. And those who haven't, I think, are united in a sense of loss or lost opportunity that, oh, my parents never spoke to me in that language and I don't speak it. Or we would very rarely talk about this and I feel less bonded to that culture. So my advice to parents is would be to, to celebrate your culture and to transmit that to your kid. And I think the strongest way you do that is through language, because language embodies so many things. So I definitely encourage parents to do that. Um, whilst also, I think, keeping an eye on wherever you're living, if that's a third culture outside of your, you know, inherited cultures, helping your kids understand that and the, and the cultural differences of that place. Because I think you can feel like an outsider sometimes if both your parents are not from that country and you don't know the custom. And that can be hard. And yeah, you'll figure out yourself as a kid and you'll, you'll hopefully integrate and assimilate, but it can be hard feeling like the one looking in. Definitely, if you speak the language or if your parents are from that country, it doesn't mean that you, you'll get the codes automatically. And sometimes it's gestures, mm. sometimes it's face expressions and tones. Uh, sayings, it's so true. So, I mean, I notice it now, for example. So in, in England, if you say something is insignificant, you say it's a drop in the ocean. In German, you say, ein Tropf auf dem heißen Stein. It's a, it's a, it's a drop on a, on a hot plate <laughs> or a hot stone, so it evaporates. So you could, you know, you could speak both languages perfectly, but you might end up using a saying in one language, which is completely wrong. <laughs> you know, if you are from a certain culture, but you have a job which is quite international and global, and you have international colleagues, I think you can pick up a lot of sensitivities and nuances of culture through, through that. So you might be completely English or completely French or whatever, but you work in a very international context and you might do business in different countries. 
where you know you go and approach a partner and you realize something something was weird there why didn't that work and then they, they tell you all oh, right you know in in holland we do it like this or in japan we do it like this so i think business and commerce is also a way of uh, really understanding other cultures definitely business and i think friendships because when you have a very close friend that is i don't know indian you feel like you know the indian culture and when you meet another indian you feel like you know them see this is such a good point actually and i think this can be a huge difference between siblings and individuals so for some reason i've ended up with some of my closest closest friends and you you'll hear this from their names charlie james eddie very english and i think a lot of that was because they gave me access and an understanding to british culture in a way i would never have had so you know you invited around to a very english family's house for dinner and you observe their customs and the way they speak about stuff and and that rubs off on you i think it certainly does and in a different way completely i can agree with you more if you have a friend from a from another culture in an so let's say in france but your friend is tunisian you might actually begin to get have a relationship um to that country that's mediated through that friendship which is a degree of separation from the host culture. So there's all these different mixes and ways of doing it. And I think especially if you grow up in a big city or in a very multicultural part um of of the world, that's often the case. What I always find interesting then is what's the lowest common denominator? Is it the national culture? So let's say is it the local culture? Is it was it something else? I keep saying I want Luna to grow up in a more multicultural city, but at the same time we already are a multicultural family and maybe giving her strong roots is also pretty cool. I think you've hit on something really important here and I get this contrast between Berlin and Munich or more specifically the small villages outside of Munich which are very Bavarian. I mean you cycle through them on a Sunday the men in Lederhosen the women in Dienders and they're eating eating Schweinhaxen or Schweinbraten. Okay, that was a lot of German words for me too, but that's to his point actually. Basically, it's traditional German clothes and traditional German meals. But I love the. I also value that um, respect for tradition. The fact that these families continue to do this, and you walk into, you know, walk into a place and order a beer in the middle of a bike ride, and they speak to you in deepest Bavarian dialect, which I can hardly understand. But I love it. They're friendly, warm-hearted people. Now, if I take Berlin by contrast, Berlin is the most multicultural, open place. I think. in Europe you can really be who you want to be and what i find there sometimes differently is you don't hear very much german spoken in the streets you always hear english predominantly because that's the language everyone knows if you're italian french wherever whatever part of the world you've come from you just speak english and then i kind of find it like oh this is a bit odd we're in germany and no one's speaking any german and i know plenty of people in berlin who don't make any effort to learn in german so they don't need it which then and this is a very personal opinion i kind of find a bit respectless i am i'm always a believer if you go to a country make the effort to speak the language i mean i don't want to get into like culture wars on this um and and ruin your podcast and its reputation marielle you know so you so you get i don't know hate mail or or or, or tweeted angrily from different groups <laughs> but i think we need to have a better respect for some people who just they're from the way they are like tradition and all of that that entails and then those people who are more comfortable with very multicultural international environments and they're not for everyone and I don't think one is better or worse they're just they're just different and having the appreciation and respect for both now with my daughter i think you know if she grows up and she's very comfortable in a multicultural anywhere in the world kind of context which is probably predisposed to because of her parents and her you know the languages she will have and the fact she'll grow up internationally that fine i celebrate it but also if if she's a bit more wants to be in one place and configure her identity in in a way that's more traditional i'll also completely respect that so and i think that's the dialogue we need to have here because i always get this implicit sense that multicultural diverse more languages more is more uh, it can be but it it isn't necessarily 
and, and just just to say, multicultural people in multiple languages—they're not necessarily always accepting of other cultures. That's that's a myth. It's a complete myth. I think it actually makes you more critical of other cultures. Oh my God, do I shit on German culture sometimes? <laughs> of course I do. I think it makes you more um, attuned to cultural differences, and it's back to the picking and choosing. You see strengths and weaknesses in culture, and then you fit that to your personality. I mean, you, you basically say, right, there's elements of this culture that fit me quite well, and I love them, and I celebrate them, and I'm going to harness them, and then there's some that I have an allergic reaction to. What's the smell of home to you? Oh, what a great question. I'm, I'm trying to not to default to the one of mum's cooking because that's one I think that naturally comes to everyone's mind. Um, I don't know, Maria. It's really funny, actually, that you talk about smell as the sense. You can choose another sense. Yeah. You can. I'm sorry, I don't want to be difficult, but uh, for me, it's, it's not always the smell of home. For me, it's the feeling of home. For me, it's taking my shoes off, going to the living room, lying down on the sofa, and then one of my parents or my sister or even the cat coming in and just that feeling of peace and sanctuary. And then, oh, hi, how are you, chat? Do you want a cup of tea? Or do you want this? Or do you want that? Or that's the feeling of home for me. It's sanctuary and it's just being able to be who you want to be without judgment. Thank you, Max. Thanks very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Big Blend. I'm starting a mini section at the end of every episode in which I try to take a step back from the interview and share with you the main things that got me thinking. So, from my discussion with Max, here's what stood out for me. We saw in an earlier episode, the one with Robin, that different siblings can have different attachments to the culture. But also what Max is saying is that one person could tune up or down the proportions of each culture depending on the situation. I thought it was a great way to put it. Something that really stood out for me was his respect for traditions and monocultural rituals. We often talk about multiculturalism being great and somehow implying that it is better than just one culture, but it isn't, and for many reasons. And it got me thinking, we're always on a quest to add more, more languages, more cultures, more competences, more experiences, but sometimes being rooted can actually bring more serenity, happiness. So I don't know if there is one way better than the other. I think they're just different. Also, little note to self, Try to create a ritual for the family as cool as Max's German camping trip. These rituals bring you closer to the culture, but also, I think, to each other as a family and for several generations. And finally, always learn a few recipes from your cultures. You never know when they might come in handy. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Big Blend. If you like what we do, talk about us to your multicultural friends. You can also give us five stars on your podcast app. And if you want to get a glimpse into the newest episodes every month, follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter on the website, thebigblend.co. Cheers and see you soon. Bye.